Amen. God is faithful, and we're so glad you're worshiping with us in the courtyard. Go ahead and sit down. And uh, I have the opportunity this morning to introduce uh, our speaker, Pastor Grant. Usually when members of the ministry staff preach, it's because I'm away. But my travel plans are severely curtailed this summer, as are many of your plans, and so I have the chance not only to be present when uh, Pastor Grant preaches, but to introduce him as well. In 2013, Grant came on staff as a part-time coordinator of our GO projects. However, it soon became apparent to us that the Lord had much more in store for him and through him for us in the ministry here at Quail. So in 2014, he came on full-time as our Global Focus Outreach and Men's Ministry Director. Since then, he has spearheaded the Go Projects. He's uh, expanded them to include the Go Lift Every Church initiative. Uh, he's the leader of our community outreach efforts, like the one that you've heard about today, our campus uh, movie day that's coming up soon. He's overseeing the men's ministry and most la uh, lately has uh, developed the men's access class that meets Sunday mornings. He's led our global focus department over these last few years and sponsoring uh, the short-term mission trips, as well as developed behind the scenes uh, a program called the Heart of Quail, which is a missions evaluation and funding program that ensures that our missions dollars are well spent. Most recently, uh, the Global Focus team has developed an internship partnership with a few of our key missions partners worldwide to give Quail members a taste of missions ministry as they evaluate God's call upon their lives for a career. While Grant has been doing all of this, he has finished his undergraduate degree. He's become an ordained minister in the North American Baptist Conference, and he's now pursuing his master's degree at seminary in Sioux Falls Seminary. So we look forward to what God is going to say through him to us today. But before he comes, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word this morning. We know that as we open our Bibles, this is your word to us. Through it, you speak to us to show us the way we are to live, to show us more about yourself and who you are. So, Lord, we pray that you use your servant, uh, Grant, this morning uh, to do just that. Bless him as he brings your word to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor Grant. Well, good morning, Quail family. You know, it has been such a long time since I've been able to see all of you. Actually, I don't see any of you. You can see me, but I can't see you. So can I just call out the elephant in the room right now? Do you know how hard it is to preach to a camera lens when you thrive and you flourish around people? And just so you know, that camera lens right there is not a person. Heck, I don't even know if there's anyone in the courtyard today. I take that back. I know there's at least one, two, three, four. Leroy, my wife, Lily, and Jerry. You know, when I was growing up, we used to watch a show called Romper Room. I'm sure it is no longer on the air. But in the show Romper Room, what the host of the show would do towards the end of the show is she would lift up this magic mirror, and she had this ridiculous, corny, like, incantation where she would say, uh, uh, romper, bomper, stomper, boo, tell me, tell me, tell me, do. Magic mirror, tell me today. Did my kids have fun at play? And, and the middle of the mirror would go clear, and she could actually see into the TV audience. And she would say, oh, I see Billy, I see Brittany, I see Joey. Is that Beth over there? Yeah, I see Beth. I see all of you. And I thought to myself, wouldn't that be cool if I had a magic mirror that enabled me to see into the courtyard? But... Of course, number one, there's no such thing as magic. We rely much more on technology than we do on foolish magic tricks. So that, wait a minute. What if I tried that? What if I try, try okay, hold on, just bear with me here. Tablet, tablet in my hand, give me vision beyond where I stand. Show me, show me, could there be people in the courtyard watching me? Well, that's ridiculous. That, that's not going to work. Wait a minute. Something's happening. Are you guys waving your hands at me? Oh, my God. I'm waving my hands back at you. So I see, I see David Madura. I see Nestor. I see Joy. Candy, I think you and my, me, 
I think you and I are wearing matching pants. But anyways, before I go, uh, before I go into my, my message, let me just offer one small word of prayer because one of those songs really touched my heart. And uh, that was when, it's, when Ryan was singing, I couldn't earn it and I don't deserve it. And I, I think we should all be in, in that sense of gratitude to our Lord Jesus Christ. I couldn't earn it and I don't deserve it. So, Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this opportunity to share my heart. God, I pray that uh, you would open the ears and open the hearts to those who would receive it, God, that you would give me clarity of speech, and we will give you the glory and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. So, when I told my wife that I had a preaching date, that Pastor Mark actually came to me and said, you know, what about this date? She said, can I buy your preaching outfit? Now, normally my sister buys all my preaching outfits, so I said, you know, the natural thing. Yeah, just talk to Marguerite. You know, and so I think that upset her a little bit because today the morning message is going to be brought to you from a 160-pound creamsicle that matches Candy Lynn in the courtyard. Um, when Pastor Mark asked if I would preach for him, you know, it always touches me when he asks me. And, um, and so I began to pray and ask God to inspire me for what it was God wanted me to say. Now, Pastor Mark is administrative. And he always gives you plenty of time to prepare if you're going to give the morning message. Typically, it's two, three, four months. So two to three, four months, that's absolutely fantastic. But for me, for me, that might be too much time because my message has actually changed three or four times during the time I've been waiting. You see, my initial message topic uh, was going to compare Jacob's son, Joseph, to Jesus. I thought it would be fascinating and an engaging topic, right? Both are dearly loved by their fathers. Matthew 3.17 reads, And a voice from heaven said, This is my son whom I love. With him I am, I am well pleased. Genesis 37.3 describes how much Jacob loved Joseph. It says, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made, him, and, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Now, I'm not quite sure what a richly ornamented robe looks like, but I kind of have an idea, if you know what I mean. Both Jesus and Joseph were hated by their contemporaries. John 15, 25 reads, But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. And with Joseph, Genesis, Genesis 34, uh, 37, 4 reads, When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Both were betrayed for pieces of silver, Jesus for, 20, Joseph for, tw or Jesus for 30, Joseph for 20. Both were stripped of their clothing. Both were mocked. Both were sent. Jesus to the cross and Joseph to uh, check on his brothers in Shechem. Both are called dreamers or deluded. Mark 3, uh, Mark 3, 20 and 21 reads, Then Jesus entered a house, and, a, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard, this, uh, heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And Joseph, when his father sent him to check on his brothers, Genesis uh, 37, 19 records it, Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. And both were falsely accused. Jesus accused by a council of elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Luke 23 uh, describes, it says, Then the whole uh, assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payments of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ, a king. Joseph is accused of making a pass at Potiphar's wife, by Potiphar's wife. Now, quite frankly, um, in, in earlier verses of Genesis, you know, she, she takes notice of, Genesis or of Joseph because he becomes in charge of all of Pot Potiphar's house. And she takes notice of him because Scripture says that he is well-built and handsome. And so she corners him and she says, come to bed with me. And Joseph says um, that I could not do such a wicked thing and sin against God. But later on, she kind of, uh, well, I think Scripture also says that, uh, that, that Potiphar's wife, even though she spoke to Joseph day by day, he continued to refuse to go to bed with her. And finally, she corners him, she grabs his robe, robe and says, 
come to bed with me, and he flees just like he should. You know, your heart might go out to Joseph because here he is accused of all these things that he did not do, and he's put in prison for it. My heart actually goes out to Jacob, Joseph's father. You know, he has already mourned the death of his son, believing that he was devoured by wild animals in, uh, near Shechem, when in all actuality he's being mauled by a cougar in Egypt. So I think this to be a great topic for a Sunday morning message. And the more I studied, the more I found why this comparison can be made. Scripture never really documents any of Joseph's sins. He didn't disclose who he was to his brothers when they came to him during the famine. Uh, and he played with him a little bit, but he is not remembered for his sin. Thirteen chapters of uh, Genesis are devoted to jo Joseph. More chapters devoted to Joseph than all of the patriarchs of Genesis. That includes Adam, Noah, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. More chapters are devoted to Joseph than any of them. And those uh, patriarchs that I just read, their sins are documented in Scripture. Scripture teaches us both the good and the bad of the patriarchs. Scripture teaches us the good and the bad of the patriarchs and the apostles. Noah got drunk and naked. Abraham lied twice. Isaac lied just like his father. Jacob cheated his brother out of his birthright. And Moses was a murderer and struck a rock in anger. David, David committed adultery and murder. Solomon allowed his wives to turn his heart away from God. Peter denied. Judas betrayed. Thomas doubted. And Paul persecuted. Scripture shows the good and the bad, uh, as, as well as the bad of the characters in its narrative, but not so with Joseph. Now, I am sure Joseph sinned, but it is not accounted to him. So what is sin? Sin is the intentional disobedience to the will of God in action, word, or thought. Now, I am sure, like I said, that Joseph sinned, but they must have been small thought sins, like, like I can't believe my brothers dropped me in that cistern. They are jerks. You just wait till I get home and tell dad, because remember, I'm dad's favorite. Or, I can't believe that they sold me for 20 pieces of silver when it's obvious I'm worth 29 pieces at least. Notice I didn't say 30. I thought this would be a, a great topic because we can all associate with Joseph, right? Who hasn't been hated? Who hasn't been betrayed? Who hasn't been wrongly accused? Who hasn't been hung out to dry? Everyone here has experienced what Joseph experienced and yet Joseph is not remembered for his sin. Joseph trusted in God, and the Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. So, this became my first message change. It's not about the comparison. It's about how we trust in God and how we deal with our own sin. You know, it's easy to justify or deflect your sin uh, and blame somebody else. You know, however, Joseph didn't do that. He trusted God, and he prospered. In Genesis 50, towards the end, after Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers, he says, Do not be afraid. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. He trusted in God, and he prospered and saved the nation. So if we're talking about sin, let's take a look at the first sin. Everyone knows which one it is, right? It's in the garden. Uh, scripture describes it when the woman saw that the tree of, uh, of the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and she ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it folks that is at the very beginning of scripture in Genesis ch chapter 3 I'm not sure where it is in your Bible but in my Bible it's on page 3 page 3 Man ate what he was warned not to eat. It's like eating something your mom told you not to eat because it would give you a stomachache. We just kind of discount those instructions. Both Adam and Eve were given instructions and told to not eat of this tree. We have all heard these types of warnings, right? Don't swallow your gum. It won't digest in your stomach. Don't pick your eyelashes because they'll never grow back. Don't go outside with wet hair. You'll catch your death of cold. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. And what do we do? We don't, do not trust in God. Look at Adam and Eve's response. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God. God calls out, Where are you? 
Adam answers, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. God says, who told you you were naked? Have you eating, eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Adam, Adam's response shows our tendency to deflect our guilt towards someone else. Adam says, the woman you put in the garden with me, you put her here, she gave me the, some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So I'm not sure, is Adam blaming God or is Adam blaming Eve? Because either way, it's not going to work well for him, right? God turns his attention to Eve and says, what is this that you have done? Her response is also a deflection. The serpent deceived me and I ate. She blames the serpent um, for her failure to follow God's instructions. I believe that this is something we all do, and we do it without even thinking. It's not my fault. I'm not the one that's spreading rumors. It's not my fault. I'm not the one that's calling people names. She is. It's, it's not my fault I hurt their feelings. I was just telling them the truth. So what is the result of sin? Genesis 3.23 says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to, the, to work the ground from which he had been taken. God placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Three pages into my Bible, and man's presence is or man is removed from God's presence. Three pages, and man is removed. Now, I'm not saying that God isn't still present with his people, but his, but his presence is mediated. I mentioned that it appears in Genesis 3, the very first sin documented in the Bible. Genesis 3. We didn't get very far in God's narrative before we messed things up. The next sin documented in Scripture is in Genesis 4, and it reads, And Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. We went from eating what we were told not to eat, Genesis 3, to murder, Genesis 4. This shows how corrupt we are and why we need a Savior. Sin left unchecked will destroy everything in its path, and it will not stop until it has taken absolutely everything. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to deceive and destroy, and he wants to take everything. You know, um, I experienced this exact tendency um, to cast my responsibility onto someone else when I should have been more aware of my own sin. It happened in March of 2013. I was, I was working at my previous job where I was the general manager of the company. I'd been there for about 28 years. The owner of the company hired a new administrative assistant. And, um, and my responsibilities on a weekly basis were to go in and, and meet with the owner two, three times a week. And it seemed like every time I left the office, this new administrative assistant would text me and you know, give me certain orders from, from the owner but then would always compliment me on how I looked. You look nice in that color. I'd say, thank you. She'd say, you know, that style really looks good on you. Thank you. She wasn't talking about this, by the way, okay? Um, I was always polite, and I would thank her for her comment, compliment. Then one day after leaving the office, immediately I get a text uh, complimenting me, and um, she says, I always compliment you, but you have never, ever complimented me. And I'm thinking to myself, man, what a horrible person I am. What a horrible person I am. So I make a conscious effort. Because I hurt this woman's feelings, right? So I make a conscious effort the next time I'm in the office to look at what she is wearing. I've never done this before because I am head over heels in love with my wife. But now, because I hurt her feelings and I want to be a kind gentleman, I force myself to look. Don't miss this. I have never looked at this woman before because I'm not interested in this woman. But I was deceived and looked. And when I did, that opened a door that never should have been opened. I start receiving far more provocative texts from her um, asking me to do things that I am not going to do. I'm not going to share what the things she was asking me to do, but my answer was always no. No, I'm a married man. No, I love my wife. No, that is not right. No, I can't do that. What part of no do you not understand? However, it did not stop. It got worse and worse. And mind you, this was three months before I took this position at Quail. Pastor Mark said I started here part-time. 
It was June of 2013. This all took place in March of 2013. So I prayed and I prayed and I prayed that God would intercede on my behalf, but he didn't. And then I finally asked him why. Show me, if, if there's something I'm doing, show me. And um, he did. He said, uh, Grant, you're guilty of the sin of pride. I said, the sin of pride? I haven't done anything. She's the one that's sending all the texts. The only thing I did was, was try to be nice and look at her and compliment her on what she was wearing. He said, but did you enjoy the compliments? Apparently, I did. You know, this, this woman who's half my age is complimenting me, and deep down inside, I must have enjoyed it. And I, I realized it right then and there that that's sin. That's a sin of pride. So I confess it to God. I say, God, I'm sorry. That's a sin of pride. That will never happen again. But now I'm so convicted that I have to confess my sin. I confess it to all of my accountability partners. I tell each and every one of them. And that took care of it, right? No. No. It got worse. It got worse. So I go back to God. I said, I have confessed to you. I've confessed to my accountability partners. Why will you not stop this? And he said, you've confessed it to me. You're right. And you have confessed it to your accountability partners. You're right. But that's not who this sin hurt. He said, this sin hurt your wife. Did you confess it to her? Well, my response probably sounded a little bit about like what you just heard. It wasn't a word. It was a guttural sound. And I said, man, no, but I will, and it's going to suck. Now, quite frankly, I was surprised at Lisa's response. She was understanding. She believed every word I said. And she wasn't really mad, but she was hurt. She was deeply hurt. And I don't know if she was hurt because I enjoyed the compliments. I don't think it was that. I think she was hurt because I let it go on too far before I confessed it to her. You know, I just kept trying to say no, 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 no. I hurt my wife deeply, and that hurt I caused her hurt me deeply. It woke me up to my self-righteousness that I need to look in the mirror and identify sin when I see it, even if it's in me. A.W. Tozer has a quote, and it says, it's doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. And I believe that's the hurt that I felt. Again, I could have kept it to myself, saying, I never said anything, I never did anything, I did nothing that was inappropriate. But had my wife found out about that and, and found out that I didn't share it with her, that would have broke her trust in me and that definitely would have had an impact on our relationship. So, great message topic, right? Then COVID hits. Did I happen to mention that Pastor Mark always gives you plenty of time to prepare when you're going to preach a message? Well, I had more time to prepare for this message than I, I really wanted because it kept changing. But the culture kept changing, right? And so I'm thinking to myself, well, um, uh, you see, Lisa and I, first of all, Lisa and I, we were in Italy the end of February, the beginning part of March, right, for, uh, for a week. And then I think it was March 14th, we took off to a planned family reunion in Puerto Vallarta. And we were there until the 22nd. Now, mind you, while we're in Puerto Vallarta, we're watching the United States close, systematically close. All of my kids flew out early, but I'm thinking to myself, if I get stranded somewhere, I want to be stranded here. But uh, they all left early, and then Trump closed the border. And so by the time I got back on the 22nd, which was a Sunday, church is closed, the office is closed, everything is closed. I, I have to be honest with you. The drive from SFO back to Stockton was the weirdest thing ever. There was no cars on the road. There was no one in customs. As a matter of fact, I thought the rapture happened, and Lisa and I missed it. So, I begin to think, preaching on sin might not be a good idea when people are already frustrated and angry. So, second change in my message topic. So, I st start thinking about the climate we're in, right? If God, you know, God, do you want me to address it? Do you want me to talk about this whole shelter in place? Uh, and I come up with a, the, the topic and like an illustration that I think fits perfectly. And we've all played it when you're a little kid because it's free. 
you played a game called red light, green light. You know, I began to share this with high school while we were in this shelter in place. Red light, green light, you run as fast as you can until the caller of the game says red light and then you freeze, right? And you wait for green light, then you take off again, red light, and you freeze. And that seemed like what was going on to me. The whole world is running at green light speed and God called red light. And the entire world froze. The first couple of weeks of this transition, you know, I thought I had adjusted. But when a couple of weeks turned into a month, and then a month and a half, then I started to get frustrated. As I told you, I thrive and flourish around people. I begin to lament. I start lamenting to God, saying, God, how am I going to do this? You know that I thrive on doing stuff for you. You know I just love doing things for you. I love getting out and engaging people to do stuff for you. And he said, Grant, I don't need you to do anything for me. Have you forgotten who I am? I'm the one who called red light. So I said, okay, I'm sorry. I start studying scripture more, and I was actually in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul, he's, he's in Athens and um, waiting for his uh, fellow missionary travelers, and uh, he's in Athens. He's wa- wandering up and down the streets. He's already reasoned in the synagogue with the, uh, the, the, the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, and now he goes to the marketplace day by day, Scripture says, to, to speak to anyone who will listen. And uh, um, as he's speaking, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers hear him and take him to the meeting of the Areopagus. Now, in addressing the people of Athens, he starts by saying, you know, I notice that you are very religious people because I see all of the objects of your worship. I've even seen an altar designated to the unknown God or to an unknown God. And then he stands up and explains them to them who this unknown God is. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So God doesn't need me to do anything for him. He doesn't need me to do stuff for him. So I go back to him and I said, okay, if you don't need me to do stuff for you, what is it that you want from me? I don't understand. His response was, stop living a life doing stuff for me and start living your life like me. Okay? Live like you, Jesus. Stop living a life for you. Start living a life like you. Jesus, do you know how hard that is? You're God. And he said, Joseph did it. I said, okay. I remember that being an aha moment for me. And in John 14, 12, Jesus says, I am the truth. I will tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I've been doing. He will do far greater things than these because I am going to the Father. So live like Jesus, not just for Jesus. Okay, now I have a topic. I can preach, right? Change number three. Don't live for Jesus. Live like Jesus. Jesus says anyone who has faith in him will do what he does. So what does he expect of me? Well, he, t- he tells James and John, and it might not be the James and John that you're thinking of. This is actually James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and they're asking him, can we sit at your right and at your left uh, in your kingdom? And Jesus tells him, and this is out of, uh, this is out of the Gospel of Mark, and it's in the message uh, translation. It says, it is not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That is what the Son of Man has done. He came to serve, not to be served, and then to give away his life in exchange for many who are held hostage. For many who are held hostage. Now, this is not the type of language that we use today. You know, we we don't give ourselves as ransom and things like that. So we, we would have to ask ourselves, what's the general principle that we can pull out of this? Well, he explains that general principle to the apostles in the Last Supper. The Gospel of Luke, uh, uh, chapter 22, says he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. And in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this is the new covenant in my blood, which has been poured out for you. 
So to live like Jesus, we need to be broken and poured out. Broken and emptied. So what does that mean? I believe it means that our hearts need to break for those things, those issues, those circumstances that break, breaks God's heart. And once our hearts are broken for those things and circumstances that break, breaks God's heart, then we need to pour ourselves, empty ourselves into those issues and those circumstances. Are there any examples of being broken and poured out? I believe there are. I mean, the Apostle Paul was poured out like a drink offering. Um, but the one I found I was going to share with you this morning is in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. It describes Jesus' anointing at Bethany. Now, Lazarus, Lazarus has already been raised from the dead. That's described in chapter 11. And uh, now he's reclining with Jesus at a dinner that is given in honor of Jesus, probably for the miracle that's described in chapter 11. <laughs> The dinner is six days before the Passover. Martha is serving because that's what Martha does. And in verse 3, it says, And then Mary took a pint of pure nard, a very expensive perfume, and she broke it and poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Scripture says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This upsets Judas because, not, because of the value of the perfume. He says that it could have been sold and given to the poor, but he's not concerned with the poor. He said it, could be, it was worth a year's wages, but he, he's not concerned with the poor. He's concerned um, about himself because he was a thief and used to help himself to the money bag. You ever notice how no one names their sons Judas? It's Mary that's broken and poured out. I can ima imagine the tears streaming down her cheeks as she touches Jesus' feet. I imagine the gentleness she used to wipe his feet with her hair. I can only imagine the stunned silence in the room of those who are witnessing this humble act of worship. This is what broken and poured out looks like. In humility, Jesus was broken and poured out for us. In humility, Mary is broken and poured out for Jesus. So how do we focus on obedience to God like Mary? I believe that the prophet Isaiah tells us when he's describing a vision that the Lord gave him. It's in Isaiah 6, 8. It says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Now, the very first time I preached at Quail, uh, I pulled out this Celebrate Recovery coin. And on the back, um, that exact verse is imprinted on the back. Then I heard the Lord say, Whom shall I send who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And I carry this coin in my pocket every single day as a reminder of my responsibility to answer God's call. And I believe that is what God wants all Christians to say. Send me. He wants our hearts broken for what breaks his heart. And then he wants us to empty ourselves into what breaks his heart. I have not met anyone in Celebrate Recovery um, and that isn't broken and poured out. That's not saying, here I am, send me. So earlier I spoke on Adam and Eve's sin and how it removed them from God's presence. You know, one could argue God's presence or God's temple is where God's presence is. We know that his presence was in the tabernacle. We know that his presence was in Solomon's temple, and we know that his presence was in Herod's temple. But I could argue that the first temple could have been the garden because God's presence was there as he walked, in, uh, as he walked among the cool of the day. He was there. And man was removed from that, that intimacy. And it wasn't until... Our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross and that veil was torn from top to bottom that it released his presence back into the world. And we're the manifestation of that presence. The Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth writes, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys uh, God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. 
Could God's plan be to re-enter into the same type of relationship and presence he had with Adam and Eve in the very beginning, but that sin separated? I believe that we could be the vessels that God wants to use in order to accomplish that. So, I've already explained that Pastor Mark gives you a lot of time to prepare, right? Well, when I came upon this message, then all of a sudden we could start meeting together again. Now, we were reduced to 25% or 100 people, but we would have people in the courtyard. Um, in the courtyard, I think that's the only overflow uh, venue we use. But at least we're about to uh, meet again. So the red light, green light, live your life like Jesus, all of that kind of seemed moot compared to the new climate that we were living in. However, four weeks into that, we get, uh, uh, they reinstitute no indoor gatherings, and it proved prohibits us from meeting inside, and I go to God, I'm like, look, I'm confused. You know, I, I thought it was this, I thought it was this, and I thought it was this, and then you change the climate and the culture. What is it that you want me to preach on? This is change number four. He said, preach on the life of Joseph, who was a mortal man, who was just a normal, ordinary man, yet he lived a righteous life. Preach on our tendency to deflect our shortcomings and, and point them to others. Ask ourselves, do, do we have unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our hearts that exclude us from, from really radiating God's full presence? Are we responding when God calls? Here I am, send me. I believe that God wants us to be part of his plan, but we have to be able to radiate that full presence. You know, last week, Pastor Mark um, said in his message, to become a Christian is to humbly receive the gift of forgiveness that Jesus offers. And, and I just love the way he said that because that's exactly the way I imagine it. As, God, as Jesus is offering you this gift of forgiveness, it is like the most elaborately elegant, beautiful gift you have ever seen in your life. It's, it's not like, you know, wrapped at Walmart or Macy's, not even, not even Nordstrom's. This one comes from Saks Fifth Avenue's or Bloomingdale's. You know, and you know it's yours because it's got your name written right on it. My gift, it said Grant John Hawes. There was no mistaking that that gift was intended to me, and Jesus was holding it out to me, um, asking me to please receive it. Please receive this gift. You know, and I did receive it. And I was so happy that I received it. I would look at that gift, and, you know, I would tell myself, man, you, you, you finally, you, you're you're a Christian. You have salvation. And, and I would look, man, I would dust it off every once in a while, and I'd just leave it there. Maybe that's what God is telling you today, that he is asking you to finally receive this gift of salvation, this freely given, offered gift. He's wrapped it for you. He, he's written your name in that real fancy writing, but it's, it's there. Your entire name is on it. That gift is for nobody else. But if you don't receive it, it's not a gift. It's just a fancy wrap box with your name on it. Receive it. And it is easy to receive. It's received by faith through prayer. That's it. And so I'm going to ask you to humor me a little bit. This is something that uh, uh, it seems like we have been doing each and every week, and we have been offer, or leading a prayer to accept this gift. Now, I would just like to do that. And those of you who have already accepted that gift from God, maybe your prayer should be that God would send um, his provenient grace before it so that those that he knows are going to receive that gift today, that their hearts will be ready, they'll be touched, and they will receive that gift. So if you would just bow your head with me and offer this prayer. Father God, I have been trying to do this on my own for so long, and I continue to fail. I continue to make mistakes and feel that I am not forgivable. But I do believe that you have a gift for me. I believe it is the nicest gift that I could ever possibly receive. So God, today, by faith, I receive that gift. I accept that gift from you. I've turned it from a box to a gift. And I pray, God, that, uh, that you would forgive me, that you would forgive me of my sins. I repent of my sins. I want to become a child of God, and I want you to be my Lord and Savior, for I pray it in your name. Amen. 
Hopefully some of you out there prayed that prayer, whether you're watching at home, whether you're out in the courtyard. If you prayed that prayer, Pastor Mark has a book that he likes to send to you, and it's called um, Now What? Living Out Your Christian Faith. And in order to do that, we need your information. So if you prayed that prayer, if you humbly received the gift of Jesus' forgiveness, text the word FAITH, F-A-I-T-H, FAITH, to 209 257-8768. Again, it's 209-257-8768. We would love to talk to you as well as get you this book. Now, as I told you, I received that gift. And if any of you out there in the courtyard or at home know my testimony, God really spoke into my heart on November 5th of 2005. It was during an Ironman triathlon. I felt like I had a void in my heart that I just couldn't seem to fill. So I would do these races. And when I'd finished the race, I would feel fulfilled for a while. And then that emptiness would come back. And so I convinced myself I had to qualify for the Ironman World Championship. And so I trained harder than I've ever trained in my life. And on November 5th, 2005 was the day of that race. I had the fastest swim I had ever had. I had the fastest bike I'd ever had. But about three miles, just over three miles into the run, I remembered having this thought. And it was, why are you doing this? This is stupid. And I remember God's response. He said, Grant, you're looking for me. And I said, well, I've already found you. He said, no, you... You haven't received everything I have for you. Open the gift. And I think November 5th, 2005, after mile three, I finally opened that gift. Now my brother always, and my life has been forever changed since then. My brother couldn't do that race with me, so uh, he supported me, he showed up and supported me, but he made this book to kind of commemorate the, uh, the event. And I don't know if you're watching, Taylor, and I don't know if the words you wrote in this book 15 years ago, if you knew the impact it would have on me, because I saw this book when I was writing the conclusion to this message. And in the back, the very back, is where he kind of wrote a paragraph. And it says, only those who have traveled the journey of 140.6 miles can understand what it takes to be an Ironman. He says, it is special, and it challenges you deep in your soul, where there are no secrets, and you find out who you are and what you are made of. And I am a child of God, and I'm made in his likeness and in his image, and I am created to do the good things that he has prepared in advance for me to do. And real quickly, I would just like to read you a short, short poem, since I've already rhymed twice today. Can you hear Jesus as he's asking, who will go and work today? The fields are ripe with promise, who will carry these hopes away? Strong and bold, the master calls, rich reward he offers thee. To those who answer promptly saying, here I am, send me. If you cannot cross an ocean to a felon's land to explore, you can find those same felons closer you can find them at your door. If you can't give all your riches, you can give a widow's might and live your life like Jesus. It will be precious in his sight. If you cannot sing like angels, if you cannot preach like Paul, you can live a life like Jesus, bearing proof he died for all. If you cannot awake a sleeping sinner, warning of the final trumpet blast, you can explain that Christ's forgiveness can erase a person's past. If you cannot be a caretaker uh, standing on Zion's wall, pointing to the path of wonder that offers life to all. And with your prayers and your riches, you can do what scripture commands. You can be faithful like Aaron and hold up our prophet's hands. If among the current generation you are not inclined to teach, you can feed his lambs as directed by placing food within their reach. Let no one hear you saying, there is nothing I can do, while the souls of men are dying and our master's calling you. So take the tasks he gives you and do them joyfully. If you hear him say, 
whom shall I send? Say, here I am, send me. You're not living in obedience if he calls and you say, Lord, I can't. It's like responding to that calling saying, here I am, send Grant. Thank you. Amen. In an attitude of prayer, I just ask that um, wherever you're at, that you just uh, close your eyes. If you would do me that kindness, if you're sitting down, if you're standing, reflect on the words of this next song that we're going to sing in closing. Let it minister to you and uh, whatever the Lord is going to be talking to you about in that time. I just pray that you receive it, to hear what Grant's words were spoken over. And then when you're comfortable, just sing out the words of this song. Feel free to stand, feel free to kneel, feel free to, to continue to sit. But for right now, just ask that you close your eyes and just listen to what God has to say.
favor be upon you and a thousand generations and your family and your children and their children and their children may his presence go before you and behind you and beside you all around you and within you he is with you Would you stand with me for the benediction? Lord, we thank you for this reminder. You are for us and not against us. So bless us with your care and your mercy. Protect us in these uncertain days. Dismiss us, we pray, that we might represent you well and be those that give forward the hope that we have in Jesus. We ask all of this in your blessed name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for worshiping with us today. We'll see you next week.